Okay, let's open our Bibles to Amos chapter 9. And we will be in the last five verses of Amos chapter 9, which are also the last five verses of the entire book of Amos. So let's read this, Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 11, going to the end of the book, which is verse 15. The word of God, it says this, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who were called by my name says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and a treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. If you are a fan of history, you probably know that individuals have been trying to build their ideal world for a really, really, really long time. And you probably know that it doesn't matter how good of an idea somebody has, all of these ideal worlds that people try to build, they end up failing. And historians, they look back on certain periods of time in the course of history and they conclude and they say, well, these were the best of times. Oh, if only we could go back to these times, then everything would be great. If only we could go back to the golden age of Rome, the golden age of Greece, or if only we could go back to the golden age of China, or if only we could go back to the time of the Enlightenment, which by the way, the Enlightenment was terrible. It's like the point in history where you could just see people just outright abandoning the Bible, abandoning biblical truth. But historians, they look back and they conclude, they say, that is the perfect world. That is the ideal world. And you start to think to yourself and you say, okay, well, that may be your ideal world. That may be your perfect world. But to me, that sounds terrible. And you see, it's been made clear throughout the course of human history that when man attempts to create their ideal world, their perfect world, they always end up failing. Why? Why do they always end up failing? Well, it's because of sin. Sin is real and sinful man cannot create a perfect world. It is evident that only God can make a truly perfect world. Only God can bring about the truly ideal world. And it's coming one day. 
One day, Christians, we will be in that place. One day, we will be in the new heavens, in the new earth, where sin will be gone completely. There'll be no more malice, no more jealousy, no more envy. Sin will be completely gone. And of course, the greatest reward of it all will be that we'll get to be with the Lord Jesus. Christian, you will be with Jesus forever. And you will be so, so happy. Sometimes we wonder to ourselves and we think and we say, well, can I be truly happy with Jesus in eternity? When at the same time, I know that my loved ones are suffering in hell. Can I be truly happy? The answer to that is yes. Being with Jesus will far supersede anything else. We come today to our last sermon in the book of Amos. And we've seen and learned a lot as we've journeyed our way through this book. We've seen and learned a lot about the kingdom of Israel. We've seen and learned that they have refused to repent of their sin, that they were engaging in things such as false, idolatrous, demonic, and satanic idolatry. They were engaging in things such as oppressing other image bearers of God. They were outright refusing to trust in the word of God. And we've seen and learned a lot about the prophet Amos himself. We've seen his boldness. We've seen his desire to honor God in every single thing that he does, despite the consequences. We've seen and learned that Amos is a type of Christ in that he's a sheep breeder, he's a shepherd, so he is a type of the good shepherd. We've also seen and learned that Amos is a type of Christ in his intercession for the people. He intercedes for the people. He prays for them. He pleads for them. Just like what Jesus is doing for those who are his, how Jesus right now at this very moment for you, believer, is interceding for you, praying for you, pleading your case before the throne of God. And we've seen and learned a lot about God himself as we've made our way through this. We've seen and learned that God sees everything and knows everything. We've seen and learned that God cares deeply about where our hearts are when we come to worship him. That worshiping God in a way that is going through the motions, worshiping God in a way that is checking off the box, worshiping God in a way that is a take it or leave it approach to worship, is not acceptable whatsoever in his sight, that he desires and he is only pleased with worship of him that is worship in spirit and in truth. And we've seen and learned that God hates sin. He hates sin and he is holy and we are not. And he will pour out his wrath and bring judgment. And we've also learned that the Lord is gracious and he's merciful and he is slow to anger. He is so slow to anger. Just think about what it is that's been going on throughout the book of Amos. Over and over again, for nine chapters, what have we seen? We've seen God, through the prophet Amos, constantly saying, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Therefore, repent over and over and over again. This is what he's doing. And 
judgment wouldn't actually even come upon the kingdom of Israel till 40 years after this book was written. So the Lord is certainly slow to anger. And we've seen and learned that the Lord is compassionate. He is so compassionate, so compassionate, that even in the midst of judgment, what does the Lord do? Well, he preserves a remnant. You see, God, he preserves a remnant chosen by his grace. He looks out for them. And that makes perfect, perfect sense. It's what the Lord is doing right now. Don't be deceived. The world is very hostile to Christianity. And the world would love nothing more than to get rid of Christianity, to get rid of Christians. But they can't. Why not? Well, it's because God preserves those who are his. God is looking out for those who are his. He preserves his remnant. Now, as is often the case with prophecy in the Bible, there is a near fulfillment of these verses at the end of the book of Amos, and there is a far fulfillment of these verses. So the near fulfillment of these verses would be about 220 years or so after this, when men like Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah would return with those who were in captivity between the time of 538 BC and 430 BC, and they would come back and they would rebuild Jerusalem. But if you're familiar with the accounts in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra, you would know that while that restoration was a great picture of God's grace, you would also know that it doesn't meet the lofty expectations that are predicted here by the Lord in the book of Amos. It was a small picture of it, but it doesn't meet the lofty expectations. You conclude from reading this that something greater is in store, something much, much greater. You see, God is a God who preserves his people, and he is a God who keeps his promises, and he keeps his promises to the uttermost. Our text today is a message to those that God has saved by his grace. Similar to the remnant living during the time of Amos, we are currently living in a dark and evil age. And it can be pretty easy to get discouraged, but there's no need to get discouraged. No need to get discouraged. We can have confidence and hope in God who fulfills his promises to the uttermost. See what the text says here, verses 11 and 12. It says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. These verses, verses 11 and 12, and 13, 14, and 15 as well, these verses for the last 130 years or so have absolutely been obliterated by those who hold to something known as dispensationalism. Now, if I was a dispensationalist, which I'm not, but if I was, I would stand up here and I would tell you that these last five verses in the book of Amos have absolutely zero significance to anybody in here. I would stand up here and I would say that all of these verses are for and only for the actual physical nation 
of Israel, and thus, since we aren't in the actual physical nation of Israel, this has absolutely no significance to any of us in here. That's what I would say if I was a dispensationalist. Now, this is by no means an attack on those who hold to dispensational theology. There are certainly faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who hold to this type of thinking. Though it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that they hold to because there's so many different areas of dispensationalism. But you look, for example, at a man like John MacArthur, who we all love dearly. He holds to certain dispensational aspects in his theology. But we look at a man like that and we say, this is a faithful man of God who stands boldly on the word of God. But then you get into some of these old school dispensationalists, and for them, it is a lot more difficult to say that they're faithful men or women of God. You see, true dispensationalism is this way of interpreting the Bible, dividing the Bible up into seven different time periods. Though most of them say seven, but sometimes they say, no, there's eight different time periods, nine, 10, 11, 12, and so on. And they say, they say that people have always been saved by grace, but they say that the object of their faith is always different, which doesn't really make any sense. So for example, what they'll do is they'll look at this period of time in the Bible and they'll say, okay, well, this is the age of conscience. And here in the age of conscience, people are saved by grace and by adhering to their conscience. Or they'll say, okay, this is the age of law. And here during this period of time, people are saved by grace and by adhering to law. And now, since Jesus has come, we now live in this grace age. So now we're saved purely and only by grace and by faith in Jesus. This is a system that wasn't even developed until the 19th century. And doing some research on dispensationalism, I found this very, very interesting, that one of the most influential books in dispensational theology and dispensational thinking was published in the early 1900s by a man by the name of Clarence Larkin. And he titled his book, this is one of the most popular, influential books, he titled his book, The Greatest Book on Dispensational Truth in the World. Isn't that amazing that he titled his book that? How is it that nobody went to Clarence Larkin and said, hey, Clarence, it's probably not a good idea to title your book this? Apparently nobody did. If I was going to publish a book called The Greatest Book on Reformed Baptist Truth in the entire world, I would hope that somebody in here would come up to me and say, Dan, you might want to consider coming up with a different title for your book. Apparently nobody did that with Clarence Larkin, although perhaps they did and he just didn't take that suggestion. Now, one of the biggest things that all dispensationalists hold to is the fact that there are two peoples of God. That's what they would say. So they would look and they would say, okay, well, there's Israel over here and then there's the church. And by doing that, what they're doing is they are having a Israel-centered hermeneutic. Now you ask the question, well, how is that different than what we believe? Well, we hold to the fact that the church 
makes up true spiritual Israel. That believers in Christ make up true spiritual Israel. And thus, from that, we have a Christ-centered hermeneutic, where we look throughout the Bible and we see that this is all pointing forward to Jesus. We look and we see that there are one people of God, which are those who have been saved by faith in Jesus. And this is something that we've seen throughout the book of Amos, actually. We've seen that there is ethnic Israel, or physical Israel, and then we've seen that God has a remnant, otherwise known as true spiritual Israel. Now, quick little side note here. Often when we speak like this, people will often accuse us of being anti-Semitic when we say that there's true spiritual Israel. And the reality is, is that nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, we love Jewish people. Certainly hope that every Jewish person gets saved. That would be amazing. But then, nonetheless, the fact remains that in order for Jewish people to be saved, they have to come to saving faith in Jesus. It's the only way in which anybody can be saved. So what does the dispensationalist say about our text? Well, they would say that this was either fulfilled in 1948 when the Jews went back to Israel, or they will come to this and they'll conclude that this will be fulfilled by the actual physical nation of Israel after a seven-year tribulational period. So again, we would disagree with them. And again, according to them, this has no significance to any of us in here. Now, in getting all of that out of the way, let's actually discuss what the text is referring to. Verse 11, it starts off and it says this. It says, on that day, on that day, what is the day that's being referred to here? Well, the day that's being referred to here is the coming of Christ. That day is referring to the famous day of the gospel. This is a prophecy stating that the time of the Messiah would come. It's referring to the days that at the time hadn't come yet, but now have come and are continuing. The days where Christ has planted his church and his church is successful. It says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David. Calvin writes about this verse. He says, it is as though he had said that the only hope would be when the Redeemer who had been promised would appear. You see, this is what spiritual Israel was looking forward to. They were looking forward to the promised Redeemer. This is how they were saved. How is it that we are saved? Well, we're saved by looking to Jesus, by trusting and having faith in Jesus. How is it that people in the Old Testament were saved? Well, they're saved, or were saved, in the exact same way, by looking to Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by having faith in Jesus. And this is important that we know this, because there are so many out there who will say, okay, now we are saved by grace. However, prior to Jesus coming, people were saved by their works. Prior to Jesus coming, people were saved by adhering to the law. And that is just not true whatsoever. And it doesn't make any sense practically, because if people could be saved by their own works, by adhering to the law, why in the world would Jesus have to come? 
doesn't make any sense. Also, what it also does, those who would conclude and say, well, people were saved in the Old Testament by their works, it allows for boasting. That people in the presence of God could say, yeah, okay, I, I know Jesus fulfilled the law, and I know Jesus was perfect, but look at me, I also did this as well. The only way that anybody has ever been saved is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The book of Hebrews is very clear about this. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. Well, really all throughout the chapter. Hebrews 11 verse 4, it says this. It says, by faith, Abel. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph. 23 and 24, by faith, Moses. So how were people saved? They were saved by faith. Couldn't be more clear in Scripture. Now, if you look at your footnote in verse 11, back in Amos, chapter 9, verse 11, you will see your footnote for the word tabernacle has a word, and that word is booth. So the idea here is that David's house is supposed to be this strong house, but it isn't. It's reduced to that of a mere booth. Verse 11 tells us that David's house has fallen down. Remember, remember the fact that David's house is divided. The nation of Israel at this point in time is divided. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north, kingdom of Judah in the south. So there's no unity here. The rulers of these two kingdoms are evil and wicked men. So his house, David's house, is not a strong house. It's reduced to a mere booth. But it will be raised up and it will be repaired. That's why the Lord says at the end of verse 11, he says that he will repair its damages and will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So glory, glory would return to Israel under a king and all of God's promises would be kept. And who is that king? Well, it's Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the greater David. Do you know who made it clear that Jesus is the greater David? Jesus made it very clear. In Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46, it says this there. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David, which is true. Everybody knew that the Christ was to be the son of David. And then look at what Jesus says. Jesus just has a perfect, perfect response. It's a very dangerous thing, as you see as you make your way through the Gospels, very dangerous thing to try and debate Jesus. Jesus says in verse 43, he says, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Jesus makes it clear he is the greater David. And God, through Christ, has restored the house 
of David. He's raised the booth of David to the strong house that it is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is getting at what just a few centuries later the prophet Isaiah would be getting at when he would compare David's house to a small tree stump. Isaiah 11, verse 1, he says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. You see, David's house looked like it was completely ruined. David's house looked like it was a plant trying to grow in concrete. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2, it says this about the Lord Jesus. It says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. You see why it's so important to have a Christ-centered hermeneutic? It's so important because all of the scriptures are about Jesus. It's all pointing forward to Jesus. Verse 12 says this. It says, That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Verse 12 here is incredible. Verse 12 may very well be the most incredible verse in the entire book. It says at the end of it, it says that the Lord is the one who does this thing. So naturally we ask, we say, okay, well, what is it that the Lord does? Well, if you just look up, you'll see that the remnant of Edom will be drafted in. The remnant of Edom will be drafted in. We don't understand the significance of this, but this is very significant. You see, Edom was Israel's enemy. Edom and Israel hated each other. And this is part of the reason why the Lord mentions Edom here. The prophets, what they would do is they would typically use Edom as a representation of the world's hostility to God. So the people of the kingdom of Israel, they would have preferred for this text to say that Edom will be conquered. That's what they would have wanted it to say. And the reality is, is that Edom will be conquered. The remnant of Edom will be conquered, but not with the sword. They'll be conquered by the divine grace of God, which happens to be the way, believers, that you were conquered by God. You were conquered by his divine grace. This is the real reason why Edom is mentioned here. It's getting at, it's getting at the incredible nature of the Messiah. The incredible nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is so incredible that he will subdue those who hated him the most. And it won't just be the remnant of Edom, which is shocking, but it'll be many others as well. That's why it says there, it says, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So the rest of the Gentiles, those who are called, will be drafted in and be a part of true spiritual Israel. How do we know, how do we know for a fact that this is referring to true spiritual Israel and not referring to ethnic or physical Israel? Because it's one thing for me to just stand up here and say it, but I'm a fallible person, as I'm sure you all know. So how do we know for a fact? Well, we know for a fact that it's referring to true spiritual Israel because the New Testament tells us that this is the case. In Acts 15, the Apostle James, he quotes 
Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And here, or there in Acts 15, the question that's being addressed at the Jerusalem Council is, what should we do with the Gentiles? All these Gentiles are coming in. All these Gentiles are coming to saving faith in Jesus. What should we do? And it says this, Acts 15, verse 12. It says, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Listen to what James quotes. It says, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Verse 18, he says, Known to God from all eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. See what James says there? James says that this includes the Gentiles. James is saying that the Gentiles coming to saving faith in Jesus is evidence that Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 is happening. And James is also saying there that in the sight of God, Jew and Gentile are equal. That there's no first, second, or third class, or fourth class citizens in God's kingdom. The remnant of Edom, as well as the remnant from other places, they become a part of the remnant of true spiritual Israel. And it's not fulfilled in its entirety yet, in that the entirety of the remnant of true spiritual Israel hasn't reached its concluding number, right? We know that because there are still people coming to saving faith in Jesus. But it's underway right now. It's underway right now, and one day it will be completely fulfilled. The fact that the gospel is going out and advancing, and every day Christ is conquering more souls by his grace, is evidence that Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 is happening right now. Should we be surprised by this? And the answer to that is no, of course not. Psalm 2, verse 8, listen to this. This is a conversation before the foundation of the world, conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father, he says this to God the Son, to the Lord Jesus in Psalm 2, verse 8. He says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession." This is what it's being spoken about here in the book of Amos. It's happening right now. You know, it's interesting. These verses, verses 11 and 12, are clearly talking about some sort of expansion. And perhaps at the time when people were reading this, they would have concluded and said, oh, well, this is talking about some sort of military expansion. But Jesus tells us that his kingdom doesn't expand that way. His kingdom doesn't expand by the power of the sword. His kingdom doesn't expand by taking land and then building large castles and things like that. No, his kingdom expands by the conquering power of the gospel. That as people humble themselves and believe the gospel and submit their lives to Christ, they come under his reign as king. 
and his reign and rule is spreading successfully throughout the entire world. It's happening right now. Verses 13, 14, and 15, it says this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and a treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. There's something immediately that sticks out to us in these last three verses, and that is this, that there is a great shift that occurs here, a great reversal of fortune, that this land that the Lord had made very clear was going to be withered up. He had made that very clear. He had said things like he was going to bring drought upon the land. So he made that clear. But now, in these last three verses, it experiences transformation. I mean, look at what's said here. It says that the mountain shall drip with sweet wine, gardens and fruit and vineyards everywhere. This great reversal is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. Christians, prior to coming to faith in Christ, we were withered up. Prior to coming to faith in Jesus, we were dead. We were spiritually dead. We were walking around like dead people, walking around like zombies, just aimlessly going through life. Perhaps you've done this. Perhaps you look back on your life prior to coming to saving faith in Jesus, and you look back and you say, how in the world did I do anything? How did I do anything? I was just getting up mindlessly and aimlessly going through life. But praise God that for you, believer, a great reversal has happened. Praise God that we've gone from being his enemy to now being his friend. Praise God that we've gone from being his enemy to being his child. That we were once in captivity, but no longer. We are no longer held captive to sin and Satan. Verse 14, it says, the Lord says, I will bring back the captives of my people, Israel. Think for a second, just think about how amazing it is that God would set us free all the while knowing at the same time that we had no desire to actually go free. Believers, we were once suffering from something very real, and that is spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. You're aware what Stockholm Syndrome is? I'm sure that you are. Stockholm Syndrome is when somebody gets kidnapped and then they end up falling in love with their kidnapper. So typically, you see, you see this done where like an evil man will kidnap a woman and then the woman ends up falling in love with the kidnapper and the police come to rescue the woman but she doesn't want to go with the police and she wants to stay with her kidnapper that's kind of what it was like you see God he set us free and yet at the same time we still didn't have any desire to go after him he set us free and yet at the same time we still wanted to go back to our sin so what else did God do? Well, he also gave us new desires. 
He gave us a new heart at that time when he set us free. So thus, we pursued him. God brought back the captives to be drafted in to spiritual Israel and to be saved. And yet, as great as it is to be saved, and it's the best, it is so wonderful to be saved, as great as it is to be saved, there is even more in store. You see, in Christ, we have an abundance. We have a spiritual abundance, and we get to experience it right now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what Jesus is getting at in John 10, verse 10, he says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And we have it right now. We have eternal life right now. And at the same time, we get to experience these snippets of what awaits us. So we get to experience snippets of the eternal joy and fellowship and gladness that awaits. We experience it now, and yet it's not fulfilled in its fullest yet, but it will be. It will be one day. You know, there's a lot of debate concerning these last three verses, even debate amongst Reformed folk, people who hold to Reformed theology, solid, solid people. And the debate is, well, is this merely talking about spiritual blessings, or is it also at the same time talking about physical blessings? So will this only be a spiritual fulfillment, or will it be a physical fulfillment as well? Well, the answer to that is that it'll be both. It'll be both. Christ's kingdom is advancing right now, spiritually. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, says this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This new covenant, also known as the covenant of grace just being fulfilled in its entirety, this new covenant is given royally by Christ to those who are a part of his kingdom. You see, what happens is that there was a veil in front of us. There was a veil, but now that veil has been lifted. And now, when that veil's lifted, Christians, we saw Jesus for who he truly is. When you come to Christ, the veil gets lifted, and you see Jesus, and Jesus becomes irresistible to you. And then you freely go to him. It's what Psalm 110 verse 3 is getting at when it says your people will be volunteers 
or when it says your people will offer themselves freely. It's also the eye in tulip, also known as irresistible grace. So we don't submit to Jesus' rule because we're afraid of him as if he's some maniacal tyrant or something like that. No, we submit to his rule because he's become irresistible to us. We've seen just how incredible he is because the veil has been lifted. So in that way, Jesus' kingdom is going forth successfully in a spiritual way. But this is also physical as well. And it's not physical, verses 13, 14, and 15. It's not physical in the sense that the nation of Israel will one day become the world's greatest superpower and all these other nations will just be afraid of them or something like that. That's not what it's getting at. But when we're talking about physical blessing, we're talking about physical blessing that awaits believers, true spiritual Israel in the new heavens and in the new earth. We're there true spiritual Israel, those who have been saved by the grace of God, we will experience all spiritual and physical blessings together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus himself will be there with us. It'll be amazing. Does this sound too good to be true? Does it sound too good to be true? You know, there are a bunch of liberal theologians who come to these last five verses in the book of Amos, and they say, no, no, this, this can't be original. There's no way that this can be original. And they conclude that basically by just saying, this sounds too good to be true, which kind of gives you a, a hint at the type of scholarship that's out there when it comes to those who are against the Bible. But they come to this, the last five verses, and they say, well, it just doesn't make sense because God and Amos, they've just been saying judgment is coming, judgment is coming. But now this just seems way too good to be true, so it can't be original. And of course, those liberal theologians, they hate Christ, so they know nothing about the grace of God. So in a way, you could understand why they would conclude that, though they're wrong. But this is what awaits us. Christians, this is what awaits. What's the main point of this section? Well, the main point of this section is Christians rejoice. Rejoice. For God will pour out all blessings on those who are called by his name. Christians rejoice. For God keeps his promises. He is faithful to keep his promises to the uttermost. Christians rejoice. For the Lord Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And one day he will break open the sky. He will come back. And all of this will be fulfilled in its entirety. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you for your word, just how it's an encouragement to us. God, we thank you for, for those of us in here that you've saved by your grace. We thank you that we're a part of true spiritual Israel, that we've been drafted into the remnant. We thank you, God, that you preserve your remnant. We thank you, Lord, that you are constantly looking out for us, constantly keeping us, Lord, and protecting us. God, we pray today for those in here who are not yet a part of the remnant. God, we pray that they would come to believe the gospel. We pray, God, that you would soften their hearts, that they would come to see what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ did for sinners just like them 
how he bore the wrath, the wrath that we deserve for our sins, that he rose victoriously from the dead, conquering death. God, would you just, would you just soften hearts today? Would you cause those who don't know you to be born again? Would you cause them to repent of their sins, to humble themselves, and to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ? God, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.